Hi, welcome. This is Jill Norton. And this is Jay Boninsinga. And this, and this should be a, a podcast. podcast. We're back after a huge two-month delay. Yes. Where, um, what happened to you? Where were you? <laughs> I couldn't find you. For two months, I've been searching. <laughs> we've been holed up in our little thing. Well, we've had a lot going on. We had, I think yeah. we had meant to do this over the holidays. We had this huge holiday break, and we thought, oh, well, you know, for sure, we'll do one over the holidays, or we'll do one in January. And then January just was a... Right. A, a, clusterfuck (laughs) (laughs) that's a perfect word for it (laughs) i mean we did we had the holidays we had our birthdays and that was all lovely and very relaxing and uh nice being all holed up here together and chill yeah absolutely did you have fun on your birthday it's always just (laughs) so much fun you really know how to do it up and also, when you get to be my age, you, you kind of downplay it. You're like, oh, that's okay. That's okay. No, I don't, I don't want to sell it. No, I, I'm, but you secretly you do. You want, you want to have somebody make over you, I think, Which, on your birthday. Do you think that? That's why you're up till 3 o'clock in the morning blowing up balloons and hanging streamers yeah, for my birthday. Right, exactly. I think it's because you miss your children. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's primarily due on to others. As you would have them do unto you. Right, but you blow up all the balloons and hang up the streamers on December 23rd for me. And then luckily they're still there on January 2nd for your birthday. Right. So I I can kind of like skate skate by. It's ecological. It's green. (laughs) We reuse. Right. And you do all the work. Our bling. Uh, I'm happy to do it. And then we also had our chaos of the riot at the Capitol. Which was yeah. insane. Horrible. Uh, Terrible. But it was the same day that we won the Senate in Georgia, which got right. buried by the whole Capitol riot situation. Yeah. But That's then, true. It's like, you know, it's always a mixed bag. It's right. always the good, the bad with the good and the good with the bad. And, right. But that bad was yeah. really bad and very yeah. terrifying. Terrible. And, but then inauguration and Biden, Kamala Harris, first yeah, there's woman the good. vice president. Good is good is over outweighing the bad right now. I think. Yeah, definitely. But then the other thing that was the biggest holdup was um, the passing of my amazing stepfather Mal, um, which was right in the middle of all that in uh, the beginning of January. And even though he had dementia and it was a long, you know, process that we knew was going to happen, it was still a shock to the system yeah. and um, really affected me way way more than I ever anticipated it would. I had never experienced a death in the family like that close. As you saw, I was just a ball on the couch and on crying yeah. at every moment and hard as hell to not be with my family, to not be with my mom. So that was a really hard experience. So that was yeah. the biggest, I think, hold up to doing this. We had a Zoom Shiva, thanks to my fabulous brother, with a rabbi and everything, and it was really... It really worked beautifully. Although I was skeptical, it was really a um, beautiful experience. Yeah. Connecting with, like, the grandchildren and just having everybody there sharing stories and the rabbi kind of moderating, and it was just beautiful, and I really... It was the first Zoom I did not want to end. And it was just, you know, my brother and I both experiencing, you know, how much he had meant to us and kind of going all the way back 
and the funny story from the Shiva that you are aware of, but it was really just a really, um, I don't know, it was a meaningful, symbolic thing, was that uh, there's a photo of my brother and I when Mal, my stepfather, came into our family, and he was dating my mom, I think, not even married, and he took Jeff and I on a family picnic, and we were just, you know, we were early teenagers, and we were surly, and we did not want any part of this we were so miserable and there's a hysterical photo of Jeff and I just looking miserable and Jeff's got his head on my shoulder and I'm looking down and we could not be surlier and we've always laughed about this photo forever but all of a sudden the day of the Shiva I thought of that photo and I thought you know we had never been on a family picnic before we hadn't we didn't even know we, it was just you know beyond our comprehension of what it even meant <laughs> right. to have something like that and of course when, when you how old were you you were like 15 or i don't know i was 14 i was probably 14 maybe 13 13 14 yeah. well you hate everything at that age right exactly you find everything disgusting right so uh yeah but so we've laughed about this for so many years but all of a sudden that realization of how much you know something like that it kind of symbolized what Mal had brought to our family and brought so much love to my mom and to us yeah. and, um, and to Frida. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, but we talked about it at the Shiva and it was just really a beautiful thing to kind of like come all the way around back to that. And, the, and also after we got done with have the Shiva. Have you noticed she doesn't come down here unless we have food or we're doing a podcast? But you know what? I specifically invited her to come down while we're talking and not while you're reading. Oh, because <laughs> she'll get bored. Well, no, because she—I don't want her to interrupt you while you're reading, but she can be part of the conversation, right, Tina? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let me finish my story. Sorry. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but the realization after the shiva ended that Mal took that photo. You know, my mom wasn't a big camera person and so and Mal was so Mal probably took this photo of us that you know we were miserable. We didn't even think about the impact that photo has like now you know 40 years later pretty much right uh, so uh yeah it really was sort of a full circle like just you know hearing everybody else hearing the grandkids just realizing how much he brought to our life was really right, a powerful right. experience right but thank you you were good to, for, to me for the whole thing <laughs> you were a good good partner good yeah we've lost two fathers yeah since we've done this podcast yeah how strange yeah it's very strange but hopefully you know people are getting vaccinated now and i'm really hopeful that soon enough we'll all be able to travel and able to see our family again and you know how did that picnic and the surly teens and the picture alter the future? Uh, well, I kind of s explained that it was symbolic of, of Mal, and you know, it was a symbol of something, of, what, of something that changed everything, which is Mal, what Mal brought to our life. You know, he brought kind of this, let's go on a family picnic, let's do this, let's, you know, he brought cooking into our life. You know, we were TV dinner kids, you know, it was, uh, you know, he brought just joy and laughter to my mom. And, um, you know, I mean, he was tough 
<laughs> he was tough as nails at times, but he was such just a wonderful person, and he really, you know, was very good to Jeff and I, and always supportive of us, and always loving, and so, it, you know, it was sort of at the Shiva that I had that kind of recognition of this whole, you know, that point being this insignificant, seemingly insignificant moment to Jeff and I, something we laughed about over the years, like, oh my God, that picture's so funny. And then not really re- realizing the impact of it, of what Mal brought to us. So it was like this little symbol. Yeah. That, yeah. Right. The photo took on, here, here's a kind of a segue um, into our theme today. The photo kind of took on a much different patina of meaning for you and your brother Jeff. Over the years, it it literally became, you know, a symbol, and 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 finally, by the time Mal had passed, and you're having this wonderful Shiva remembrance of him, that photo became, you know, priceless. Right. And it and it really, you know, changed your world. Right. That was the beginning of your world being changed. Right. Would you say, Jill, that it was <laughs> a butterfly effect? I would say it's something like that, yeah. That should be a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the butterfly effect. Yeah, I mean, um, have you, you've heard of that before, right? Well, before, before this podcast. Well, it's yeah. been in your vernacular, your... Sure lexicon. Well, it's you, been, I mean, I'm married to you and you talk about it. But is that the only it. reason but before me? Did you did you know what it meant? I, I, I me? guess I knew what I meant, but it meant but I never really put a lot of thought into it, you know, and how it affected my life or, you know, beyond like the movie or, you know. Did, did, was there a movie called The Butterfly Effect? Yeah. I, I Ashen, never saw that. Ashen Kutcher or something? Oh, didn't see that. I wouldn't, yeah. I, I, think. I wouldn't have seen that. Right, I didn't see it either. But oh, <laughs> but I okay. just knew that it, you know the concept of it. That's so. the same concept. I believe so. Yeah. I'll okay. Look, I'll look it up. But well, <laughs> you know, look. I think a lot of people have heard of the butterfly effect, but they don't know where it came from. Right. In fact, there's even like a a, con- a controversy online. I I was just curious, and on the online there's a a physicist named Halpern who believes that. Um, it came from a meteorologist I, who said... You, I happen to know all about that. Okay, well, that's <laughs> not true. That's not true. Yes, the, there, was a, there was a meteorologist in, ni- in the 1960s that said if a butterfly flaps its wings in Argentina, there could be a tsunami in Japan, meaning chaos theory. You know, right. I, mean, uh, I actually have a lot. I found a lot of. But the, the, the reason what, the reason I say that's not true is because Bradbury's story, which is where the butterfly effect first came from, was published ten years earlier. It's been it was a classic by the 1960s, so that meteorologist maybe was influenced by hearing that, or but Bradbury was the first one to use a butterfly to show chaos theory, and also it's two different things weather the way weather is formed and the way that the time travel can mess up the present. Right. Those are two different 
subjects, you know, and Bradbury's butterfly effect has to do with time travel. Right. So, but in case the li- there's a listener out there, I'm sure there's, you know, of our three listeners, one or two of them <laughs> might be wondering, what is he talking about, the Bradbury story and everything? Ray Bradbury, you know, probably the most, you know, influential and famous science fiction writer of all time, who just passed away recently, a couple years ago, um, who Frida loves. <laughs> She's commenting, as you can hear. <laughs> We're gonna leave all this in. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it he in 1952 he he sold this short story called A Sound of Thunder, and it, he sold it to Collier's Magazine. That was the first time it appeared in public. It was 1952, and um, it became one of his most celebrated and reprinted stories. Um, really briefly, the story is set in the near future, and it revolves around this company called Time Safari Inc. And for a hefty fee, they will take you back in time, millions of years, so that you, the customer, can not only see a real dinosaur, but you can kill it to experience, you know, the the dubious thrill of bagging the biggest game of them all. I hate safaris. I hate I hate people who hunt down big game. Yeah. Um so this story really resonated for me because there's this, there's a catch, there's a catch to it. There are many, many, many ironclad rules that this company in the story must reinforce. You know, they keep a close watch on their clients when they're back in time, millions of years. You know, they make sure that the customers stay on the metal walkway that they, imp, you know, implanted there, and they, you know, they make sure that the dinosaur that's killed was going to die naturally in the past. You know, it was earmarked. It was going to die from natural causes. So nothing can be disturbed and nothing in the past can change. Because, in other words, because of chaos theory, they knew the smallest change in the past can alter the present in an enormous game-changing way. And, but of course, in the story, everything goes awry and this asshole named Eccles takes one look at the actual T-Rex and freaks out and he step he, he slips off the walkway and he lands in the in the foliage and he and they grab him and they throw him back into the time uh, machine and uh, when the safari returns to the present the entire world has changed the everything the language the the politics everything's gone haywire because of this douchebag Eccles stupidity and in the, on the last page of the story, on the bottom of his boot, he finds a beautiful yellow butterfly that he stepped on and killed 66 million years ago. And from that moment on, people started to talk about... I, I don't know if the, when the phrase, the butterfly effect, was first used, but they started talking about, the, you know, the story was reprinted and celebrated and seen. And when I was a kid... I'm going to make sure that Jilly takes a picture of this for our website, one of her beautiful pictures of this completely dog-eared, you know, read and reread book that I carried around with me when I was 12. It's called R is for Rocket by Ray Bradbury. And uh, one, uh, one of the 17 short stories in it is R is for Rock is um, The Sound of Thunder. 
And I, rem- I remember vividly when I read this to my boys who were then about the same age I was when I first discovered it. They were 12 and 14. I read this to them. They were completely riveted to this scene when Eccles first sees the dinosaur. I'll just read a couple sentences from it, but it is one of the most magnificent pieces of description of an actual dinosaur you, you will ever read. It's Bradbury at, its, at, it, at his finest. It says, It came on great, oiled, resilient, striding legs. It towered 30 feet above half of the trees, a great evil god folding its delicate watchmaker's claws close to its oily reptilian chest. Each leg was a piston, a thousand pounds of white bone sunk in thick ropes of muscle, sheathed over in a gleam of pebbled skin, like the mail of a terrible warrior. Oh my God. The whole paragraph, it goes on, that's about a third of the paragraph, but it's a single paragraph that describes it. And my my boys were just bug-eyed when I was reading that to them. And, you know, it was written in 1952. It is amazing. And that's, that's where the butterfly effect comes from. And it's been, you know, talked about for many, many you know, generations is, you know, the Simpsons did a parody of it. I never knew that. I never saw that, but there was a Simpsons parody of the Butterfly Effect. Your thoughts, Jill? Well, I found some history of the the premise of the Butterfly Effect goes way back to, I found um, a few things that might interest you. Um, going back to this, this guy, Fichte, F-I-C-H-T-E, uh, in the vocation of man in 1800. Wow. He wrote, you could not remove a single grain of sand from its place without thereby changing something throughout all parts of the immeasurable whole. Wow. So, That's fabulous. Yeah, I thought that was cool. And then another cool thing I found, I found a couple things. The concept of the butterfly effect to me is my religion in a weird way. It's hard to explain, but Basically, I feel, I'm not sure. I, I feel like there's a God, but I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty sure there's, it's not a Christian God for me, my belief. I'm pretty sure I don't believe in a Christian God, but it, I feel like intuitively that there is a God. There is a higher power. It goes back to science, you know, the, the, the um, beginning of the universe. Um, there was something before that, and scientists have pinpointed when it was and it's a mystery as to what it was the singularity so in order to get things going to me there has to be a god and that is the beginning of the butterfly effect if you think about it the first iota of subatomic energy that just started the big bang is the butterfly effect you know and from then on it's just been this super complex web of actions and reactions, you know? And if you change one of those, if you take one of those Jenga pieces out in the past, you're fucked. Well, can I read one more? Yeah, please, please. You were just pausing. I thought I'd jump in because, you know. That's what you do. Exactly. (laughs) I'm always waiting for the pause that I can jump in on. Uh, Well, well, I appreciate that at least. Um, (laughs) 
Uh, there was a 13th century German proverb, for want of a nail, the kingdom was lost. And Benjamin Franklin took a poetic take on it. So he had written, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Wow, that is beautiful. Isn't that That's, cool? I've never heard that. Yeah, You're right, that is totally the butterfly effect. So Bradbury ripped off Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin should have sued him, I think. <laughs> Well, I want, and I just, well, I just want to read a little bit about that meteorologist, just because I found some cool stuff about his whole thing, Edward Lorenz. So it was the chaos theory in the fifties. Um, he was trying to predict the weather, and he was trying to figure out a way to predict the weather. And one of his, he was a mathematician as well, and he had entered as one of his, n- you know, uh, numerical entries uh, a decimal five zero six, and. It, and it created a completely different thing. The actual decimal number was 506127, but he didn't enter in that 127. And it created this completely different thing. And that's when he realized oh, that the smallest I see. thing. That was like the discovery. Right, the smallest thing. So a te- he said a teeny change in the initial conditions had enormous long-term outcomes. He used the butterfly analogy to simplify his theory because there's a really long scientific one, but um, but to explain it to Did you say people. that was in the 50s? Because uh, I read he did he came up with this theory in the 60s. Well, I it says the 50s here, but oh, I, but I don't okay. know. But he may have by the time he got to the analogy. I think that get, that's what happens in history. Things get mushy and moved around, right. and you know somebody said, well, Bradbury wrote his story in 52. Well, this guy came up with it in the 50s. You know. Right. Well, he put. A butterfly has potential to create teeny changes, which not while creating a typhoon could alter its trajectory. Right, right. And the right. butterfly became a symbolic representation of an unknowable quantity. Well, I have one more historical element. All right. Okay. So this was from uh, Jules-Henri Poincaré, who lived from 1854 to 1912. I don't know when he said this, but here's the quote. It's a little long, but... A very small cause which, which escapes our notice determines a considerable effect that we cannot fail to see. And then we say the effect is due to chance. If we knew exactly the laws of nature and the situation of the universe at the initial moment, we could predict exactly the situation of that same universe at a succeeding moment. But even if it were that case, that the natural laws had no longer any secret for us, we could still only know the initial situation approximately. If that enabled us to predict the succeeding situation with the same approximation, that is all we require, and we should say that the phenomenon had been predicted, that it is governed by laws, but it is not always so. It may happen that small differences in the initial conditions produce very great ones in the final phenomena. A small error in the former will produce an enormous error in the latter. Prediction becomes impossible, and we have the fortuitous phenomenon. Wow, that's fascinating. So I'm going to read a story called Zion, and um, even by that title, you might guess what the butterfly effect is, but you might not. So here we go. Zion. (laughs) 
She steals away that morning to her grandmother's house, painfully aware that the black fedoras are following her. Thoughts crackling with mixed emotions, adrenaline pumping, Emily Dart could easily calculate the settings that would get her safely to the edge of inland. But then what? She had never set foot in Outland, never gone beyond the verge, or past the ledges up north where the vast, gated sprawl of the individual juts out over the black, frozen slime of the festering North Atlantic. Long of bone, creamy of complexion, eyes the bluest cerulean gemstones set in the perfection of her narrow, angular, genetically engineered face. She is the epitome of superficial beauty, and for all of her 17 years, she has reluctantly counted herself a member of a fraternity of wealth, of comfort, of stubborn recalcitrant capitalism spanning the equator. 24,901 miles of private single unit compounds honeycombing the planet's last inhabitable climbs like the facets of a bejeweled belt. But in recent years, the dreams have crept up on her, gripping her with vexing imagery, half-formed wishes and false memories of a world of, of culture and forests and laughter and family and enlightenment. Now, with the advent of a single cryptic message, Emily is willing to risk everything by boarding a handicap and venturing into the dark region of the defect. The rails beneath her sing a dissonant screed as she skims over the terraformed landscape of flint and steel and shimmering gray composite. She finds herself approaching the outskirts of Region 123 and doesn't notice the robotic taxi closing in behind her. She thrusts her hand into the folds of her asbestex jumpsuit and fingers the grip of her 50 caliber Schofield. She can see the scorched iron ramparts in the looming haze ahead of her like the mouth of an ancient leviathan, the gates of Outland, its long blackened teeth gaping, poised to swallow anyone with the impudence to cross over. The taxi shivers as the brakes come on, retarding its velocity, the ping of an automated voice, inviting Emily to please exit with caution, observe all pedestrian bylaws, and remember there is no god higher than self. Yeah, eat shit, Emily grumbles as she levers herself out of her seat and lurches out the door. The plasmagram had come late that previous night, a feverish message jumping off the retinal screen embedded in the palm of Emily's dented, shop-worn hot hand. My dear granddaughter, I'm afraid I'm not long for this world. On that flat projection surface, the old woman was as pale as a revenant, her deeply lined visage the color of milkweed, her gray eyes downcast as she spoke. 
So it is within an indescribable mixture of sadness and exuberance for the adventure ahead that I ask you to come one last time, come to this godforsaken corner of the world, come to my bedside, so that your wasted old grandmama might leave you with something important, something of value. But the value of which I speak is not that of the monetary variety, but alas, that of knowledge. And may I add that this knowledge is of the forbidden sort, so travel with great caution. All of which is why Emily now moves silently between the moldering edifices that morning, barely evading the black fedora-clad secret police on her tail, down the squalid alleys, past endless seamy stretches of ruined storefronts, ruined people, and ruined corpses decaying in every gutter and alcove. At last she finds her grandmother's aging high-rise, a monstrosity of a human warehouse covered in a patina of toxic carbons and soot. Most of the myriad windows have been opaqued over with cheap asbestos, a mismatch of early Byzantine and brooding utilitarian design. The decrepit monolith of stone and glass rises into the contaminated sky where the underbellies of dark clouds are so tainted they shimmer like fish skin. Slipping in through a service entrance, Emily rides the magnetic up to the 33rd floor. At the end of the shabby corridor, she finds her grandmother's door sprung the lock blasted away and still warm. Panic trickles coldly down Emily's spine. She draws her pistol and cautiously enters. Broken-down furniture lies strewn, overturned and scattered. The air smells of nitroglycerin and sour metals, old copper and Epsom salts. A dull, livid, ultraviolet light, the color of varicose vein, flickers from the bedroom. Emily raises the weapon and enters. Helen Dart lies contorted on the floor, her legs still tangled in the bloody linen cascading off the side of the bed. Her gray, desiccated face presses against the carpet, her emaciated arms poking out of a blood-stained nightshirt, one of them akimbo behind her back. Grammy! Emily gasps, rushing to the body, gently turning her grandmother supine. The, the, the old woman tries to focus her cataract-crusted eyes, eyes that once pored over ancient manuscripts and stone cave paintings, up, up, up at her granddaughter's hovering face. The, the, the committee, they did this? Emily panics, digs in her pocket for a phone. She thumbs the emergency number with one hand while she feels the woman's pulse. A single entry wound glistens redly in the waddle of the old woman's neck, the life already mostly drained out of her. Why would, why would the committee? Don't, don't. The old woman makes a futile attempt to grab the phone from Emily. The girl starts. Grammy, why? They'll know. The old woman coughs and heaves and wheezes. They'll know that you, they'll, they'll. 
Then Emily hears the series of tones on the other end, the emergency services locking onto her location. She tosses the phone. Grammy, can you sit up? Can, can you breathe? You've lost so much. Listen. The old woman makes one final ditch attempt to enunciate to get the girl's attention. Listen to me, sweetheart. I'm, I'm past helping. Her eyes flutter. Her crooked, palsied, blood-stained finger levitates, pointing across the room. There, she utters weakly. In the, in the file, see? Over there, there's a disc that's fallen. My diary, they missed it. It's all in there for you, sweetheart, for posterity. Grammy, I, I, I don't understand. What, 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 what are you... Outside in the sky, a metallic whir closes in. It's not a medical evac. It's not emergency services. Emily knows it's a bad sign. The old woman grips the girl's sleeve, a talon tightening on her arm. Listen, it, it wasn't always this way, the world we live in. What? What? It wasn't always this way, my darling. It wasn't always dark and nasty and narcissistic. <laughs> Grammy, I, I don't, I, I just, I don't understand what you, my dear, my dear Emmy, many years ago, we changed the present. We changed it. You what? Outside, the sound keens, rising, shrieking. Emily stares down into Helen Dart's gray, milky eyes, the ancient gaze of the world's last intellectual, the stare of a dying tortoise locked onto Emily now with the eternal, helpless urgency. The world was not always this way. It was not perfect back then, but, but, but it was human. It was full of life and different colors and sun and beautiful noise, but we, we wanted perfection. Too many wars, mostly on account of religion, zealotry. So we changed the present by changing the past. Emily's narrow face freezes. She gapes down at the dying woman. You're, you're talking about time travel? The noise outside reaches an ear-splitting crescendo as the old woman tries to answer, and Emily has to lean down in order to hear. Year zero. Year, year zero. The woman's whisper creaks like a rusty faucet. We went back. And we removed a very important... The room spasms suddenly with light and sound as the window explodes. Emily spins away from the old woman as the man on the zip line bursts through the pane. Gunfire and broken glass blossom in the stillness. 
All at once, things transpire in that claustrophobic bedroom with its jiggling portraits of old philosophers and even older books, all of them handmade, one of a kind, tipping off antique shelves at a rate that's, that's, that's nearly impossible to track with the human eye, but is initiated by a sudden salvo of high-caliber lethal projectiles strafing the floor at the old woman's feet and half of her wasted, malnourished torso. Her last breaths huff out of her as she shivers, at the tiny sequential eruptions of blood and fabric puffing in the red tufts up the side of a faded linen housedress and the wrinkled skin above her jugular. In the three seconds it takes for the old woman to be silenced forever, Emily Dark manages to do three things, three things simultaneously in that cloud of debris that begins swirling around her. She leaps away from the bed toward the ransacked file cabinet, pulls her pistol, and scoops up the diary in one continuous motion. Her inertia has carried her closer to the inner door, which, which opens out into the apartment's central corridor. And when the man on the zip line has to pause for a second to unhook himself and to recock the lever on his weapon, Emily has enough time to raise her own gun while jacking the doorknob with her free hand and squeezing off a fusillade of 11 rounds of blunt-nosed, non-lethal bullets in the general direction of the assassin. The blasts puffing a necklace of tiny explosions in the molding inches above the man's head. At this point, Emily is already out the door, the disc stuffed in her pocket, her panther-like legs reinforced through years of regular genetic modifications and treatments, the hallmark of an inland ingenue earmarked for high society, now careening headlong down the narrow, seedy hallway of discarded iron rebar, packing straps and trash. And within seconds, Emily has slipped through a window, vaulted from one building to another, made it to ground level, and charged full speed down an adjacent alley toward a dark warren of buildings and pedestrian tunnels, and has, once again, slipped away from the fedoras. Hours later, Emily Dart sits alone on a desolate auto train, the only passenger at this time of night the dark void of outland passing the windows in streaks of jaundiced sodium vapor light and the blur of vast deserted housing blocks. She slumps in her contour seat, weighed down by the grief of watching her biological grandmother die before her eyes. She cradles her phone, tapping her thumbnail on the text file, pausing on the display. It had taken Emily a while to decipher the strange numbered sequences and lettered codes that lined the opening pages of her grandmother's journal. But eventually Emily realized, once the words centrifuge and launch pad had started appearing, that the numbers were geographic coordinates. These coordinates, which Helen Dart had feverishly typed into a journal over 45 years ago, referred to the location of a temporal engineering center. Emily had no idea there were still such time travel conveyances in existence, let alone that there was one located in Outland. The prevailing belief was that the old defunct time machines were destroyed or, or dismantled or sold for parts decades ago when the practice had become illegal. Nearly half a century of butterfly effect noise in the timeline, as well as the countless temporal doubles walking around the earth, confusing everybody, wreaking havoc. All of this 
had ultimately brought about the end of legal time excursions. The scuttlebutt on the street, Emily had heard, was that only a few black op missions had been sanctioned by the committee in recent years. But now, now as Emily cracked open the puzzle box that was Grammy's diary, she was about to learn the true story of how Grammy and her team had managed to remove Christianity from the timeline. It was an old centrifuge, Russian-made, wobbly and rusted out in places, not the gleaming craft that NSA operatives had been using for decades. I can assure you that. I remember the day my colleagues and I climbed into the scoop, strapping ourselves in for the slingshot effect that would propel us 12 miles above the surface of the earth into the Einsteinian slipstream and over 2,000 years into the past. I blacked out halfway up, feeling as though the skin of my scalp would peel off in the G-forces. The next thing I knew, we had splashed down, and after recuperating for 72 hours or so, taking electrolytes, squam, and restoril, doing the PT just as we had trained to do in the simulators and implants, we had recovered enough to climb out of the scoop. It's nearly indescribable the feeling you get when you step from a modern conveyance into the fecund atmosphere of some far-flung age. A little bit like stepping out of a warm bath into the cold surface of a leviathan's back. And it felt to me as though the ground were moving ever so slightly in minute tremors and subtle seismic shivers as we struck out across the verdant wetlands of ancient Palestine. We had landed in the year zero plus 16, give or take, which was as close to zero as we could come. Close enough, let's say, for an extraction, though none of us really knew the blowback we were about to visit upon humanity. I recognized the rock-strewn, overgrown valley through which we trudged eastward, the equatorial sun on the backs of our necks, the air redolent with eucalyptus and old-growth pine. This area was known, at that time, as Galilee, and our advance party had spent years doing reconnaissance here in this rustic time and place. We knew the target had vanished from his small hometown at the age of 12, he would be in his teens now, and would have visited India and many points north and east as an itinerant carpenter. Our intelligence placed him, at this particular moment on the timeline, somewhere on the edge of the Judea desert. It took us 11 days in real time to locate the boy. We rode indigenous horses, so as to blend in as much as possible, and the bulk of us refrained from speaking a word of English from the moment we landed until the moment we returned to the centrifuge. Our leader, Jim Strunk, a brilliant polymath, former Delta Force commando with two PhDs, led the final assault on that small village nestled in an oasis of palms on the high plateau. I stayed behind the front line with the documents and the translator. I could speak a smidge of Aramaic, but we needed the skills of someone like Hanlon for this quixotic, capricious mission. 
We waited behind the cover of burlap-lined huts and mud-floored kivas until Strunk sent one of his operatives down the path to fetch us. I will never forget what we saw when we rode back up the rocky precipice on which the 16-year-old Nazarene boy now sat on his haunches, as still as a deer, almost serenely gazing out at the silver-snaking tributaries of the Jordan River in the far distance like ribbons of burning magnesium. I approached cautiously with Hanlon a few steps behind me, the boy's back turned to us. We had makeshift wrist and ankle restraints, weapons of the period, months of training on how to subdue such a person, how to keep them calm during the extraction, but little did I know we would require none of these blunt instruments. Shlamlak, I said to the back of the boy's head, offering the Aramaic word for hello. He didn't turn at first. I studied the henna-colored tunic draped over his broad shoulders, the dark curls cascading down his back, tossing in the furnace winds. He smelled faintly of sweat and spices. Hanlon then chimed in with another sentence in Aramaic that I found out later was, Excuse me, young man, may we have a word with you? At last the boy turned. He smiled as he gazed up at us, and I realized right then with equal measures of horror and excitement that he was looking directly at me. My heart nearly stopped. One certainly harbors an image in one's subconscious of a figure such as this, hewn from generations of transcendent art and church tapestries, prayer cards, and dusty portraits hanging in chapels down through history. But this, this was the real thing. Dark, olive-skinned, Semitic in appearance, with the first hints of a beard. He looked older than his sixteen years, and despite the baby face, the skin around his eyes had already tanned and weathered and developed heartbreaking crow's feet, as though the young man had already been staring out at the void for years, thinking fervently about our place as humans in that terrible black abyss behind the stars. Then he said something, which I was certain was directed at me. Hanlon translated, uh, Greetings, my sister. I've been waiting for you for years now. I looked at Hanlon, then looked back at the young carpenter, the man we planned on removing from history before he had a chance to begin his ministry, and I must have appeared befuddled by his comment. I'm sorry, I said to the boy and added without a trace of guile. I, I, I don't understand. Hanlon translated my babble into the dead language that sounds like a person is choking up phlegm. The boy rose to his feet, his sandals worn from his secret vision quest in the desert. He gave me a sympathetic nod. He was muscular, swarthy, his face and arms bearing elaborate tattoos. If pressed, I would have to confess that he looked like, well, like what they used to call a rock star. I'm ready, he said in English and the sound of his exotic accent 
as well as the sheer impossibility of his response, sent waves of goose flesh down my back. I found myself offering a hand to him, and he tenderly took my hand in his. It was like touching the ages. Emily is so absorbed in the flickering scroll of text churning up the display screen in a lap that she sits in that empty train car long after it has reached its terminus point and has shuddered to a stop on the edge of the vast, desolate, stark wasteland, a territory which resembles the surface of some stony, frozen asteroid in deep space. The sound of footsteps and automatic weapons being cocked somewhere behind her now penetrate her trance and wake her up for her to suddenly power off the reader and sit up bolt straight. In her peripheral vision, through grime-diffused window glass, she sees the flickering beams of light from the committee's agent's scope surrounding the auto train. She makes a run for it. The outer door collapses with the force of her boot slamming down on the battered alloy and she lurches out into the darkness while simultaneously drawing her pistol and leaping toward the pedestrian steps that stand at the end of the depot in a sickly yellow cone of arc light, a narrow spiral that plunges down to ground level. Even now, Emily can see the first hints of the great black ruins of the centrifuge in the distance, brushing the black clouds like a corroded mountain range. She sets her sights on that sad, forgotten, forlorn facility. She hurtles down the ramshackle iron steps, ignoring the team of black chapeaued operatives behind her, on either side of her, closing in, converging on her through the fog bank of particulate, enveloping the trestles of the auto rail. But nobody fires a shot. She is outnumbered, surrounded, trapped, out of option. That's far enough! A stentorian voice calls out to her as she reaches the bottom of the rickety stairs. She lands in the dirt, falling to her knees, struggling to keep from crying as the heavily armed agents circle her, their weapons raised, the muzzles trained on her. In the grainy distance, the derelict centrifuge lies half buried in the earth, petrified like a fossilized beast. The scoop resembles a rusted-out car on a ferris wheel, the boom reaching across the barren salt flats for miles. Once upon a time, the mechanism catapulted the enclosure over 60,000 feet into the upper atmosphere where the manned craft would detach and achieve the speed of light, and passengers would fall into deep, dreamless unconsciousness as the years rolled back like a card deck being shuffled. But now as the committee's dark functionaries surround the rebellious daughter of Inland, the ruins of the time machine appear almost toy-like, a malfunctioning game discarded by a disgruntled child. Hands behind your neck, the baritone voice commands, and Emily obliges, looking up into the face of a familiar figure once revered by the intelligentsia. You, you have no idea, she says to the man, shaking her head and looking at the parched ground. That's all she can say at this point. You have no idea. Sorry to differ with you, sister. Dr. James L. Strunk, Ph.D., says to her. 
the leader of the time travel mission codenamed Project Zion. He is now in his early 70s and has a thick neck and eyes as cold as ice crystals beneath the brim of his raven black Hamburg. But the truth is, I have a pretty good idea of everything running through your mind at the present moment. Emily Dart spits in the dirt. It doesn't matter what you say, what you do to me. You can put the crown on my head. You can bulk erase my memory. But it won't change the fact. What? He looks down, his aquiline nose directly at her. That it was different once? Just get it over with. He turns to one of his retinue of agents. Arthur, get the cap. He turns back to her. Your grandmother was a cockeyed optimist, young lady. Two other men approach. One of them carrying an alloy headband embedded with digital displays. Remember, I'm doing you a favor. He's out there somewhere, she murmurs into the ground as the men attach the cerebral reboot apparatus to her head, tightening it down on her lustrous wheat-colored locks. You can't remove him from history. Not him. He's permanent. One of the men flips on the power source, and Emily hears a low hum resonating down her nasal passages. She bows her head and waits. Strunk reaches down and lifts her chin up so that his frosty stare can pierce her lidded gaze. Didn't you hear? The gods are dead. There's no such thing as religion anymore. No souls, no afterlife. He pauses for emphasis then, smirking at her. Jesus has left the building. She says nothing. She waits. The cut to black never comes. The telltale explosion inside her skull as 500 volts are rammed through her cerebral cortex never occurs. She blinks at the sound of a bullwhip snapping in midair only inches away from her, and when she finally opens her eyes and focuses on the man hovering over her, Dr. Strunk has already begun to collapse as if he were suddenly an invertebrate with no motor control whatsoever, a sack of skin folding like old laundry to the ground. He lets out a gasp, and Emily sees the tiny stun pellet lodged in the man's nape. All of this occurs over the space of a single instant that seems to hang suspended in the golden light. The other operatives scramble for cover, going for their weapons, crying out obscenities and generally panicking. It's still too dark to see the ragged band of rebels coming from the east in this sort of caravan of all-terrain vehicles and hovercrafts, kicking up a thundercloud of dust. Emily manages to rise to her feet as Dr. Strunk wreathes and twitches on the ground before her. Curled into a fetal position now, stricken and reeling from the non-lethal, albeit excruciatingly painful, stun pellet, he tries to speak, but his mouth does not cooperate. By this point, some of the other agents have already fled. Others stand agape, staring in horrible awe at the man leading the convoy of motley individuals roaring in on their battered, road-weary two- and three-wheelers. The noise and dust 
rise into a curtain of billowing fog as the lost battalion approaches. Battered lizard-tail motorbikes rumble into view, each carrying two or three tattered passengers in layers of ragged fabrics and ceremonial battle garb. The regiment consists mostly of men, although some women with feral faces and elaborate weapons populate the group. Rocket-powered three-wheeled ATVs bring up the rear, roaring into the station in flickering blue-flamed wakes. On each flank come dusty road-battered contraptions of recumbent hover cycles and sidecars skimming on cushions of noisy forced air kicking up tiny dust storms of sepia-toned murk. Emily can't move, can't speak, can't think. She can only stare at the dark figure who seems to be the leader, dismounting his two-wheeled conveyance, emerging from the dust cloud and calmly walking directly toward her. The first thing she notices is the face, wizened, deeply lined, as tough as dried parchment, the guileless, boyish look of another era now aged by hardship and rough roads. The soft brown eyes, eyes that radiate kindness, are now buried in coronas of wrinkles, the dark curls still shoulder length, but now the hair and beard are flecked with iron gray. There's an authoritative air about him, a man of professionalism, the possessor of a strange mastery that can only be described as modern. He wears black riveted denim and vintage leather boots, so worn they look pewter, and he carries stun weapons on his belt. He approaches with an unlikely combination of confidence, wariness, and deference. Emily can only stare and search for words that won't quite clear her throat. On the ground, Dr. Strunk hyperventilates, gasping for breath as he gapes up at the travel-worn man with the long hair and beard walking up to him. The newcomer pauses and stares down at the man who had only minutes ago proclaimed that a vestigial historic figure named Jesus does not exist. The newcomer smiles, an odd, unreadable grin as he looks down upon the stunned commander. I beg to differ, Dr. Strunk, he says. A moment passes and then the newcomer looks at Emily and says, Are you coming? She gapes. I, I don't understand. He smiles again. This is how it begins. She cocks her head, pulse ra racing. Do, do you know me? She asks. Do you know me? He replies. Emily looks into those deep-set brown eyes, eyes that harbor ancient truths and savage anguish, and she smiles back at the millennia. Then, because she's only human and lacks the rhetorical grace of a supernatural being, she merely shrugs and says, Why not? I got nothing better to do. Then she proffers a little bow. After you. The man with the beard takes her hand and leads her back to his two-wheeled contraption that vaguely resembles something once known in another timeline as a Harley-Davidson Fat Boy Model 103. 
He helps her onto the rear portion of the seat, then climbs onto the apparatus himself. There's a practiced manner in the way he kicks the starter, revs the power plant, and signals to his disciples. The others fire up their turbines and begin to pull away as the bearded, long-haired leader flicks his handle grip and lurches across the lot, sending a rooster tail of exhaust and debris. And the girl clings to him. From his position on the ground, Dr. James Strunk watches the battalion vanish into the morning sun. With a bizarre mixture of rage, sadness, and even a little pride, the scientist gazes at the convoy as it bellows away, receding into the distance, swallowed by the glare of the rising sun. The last faint ghosts of the caravan like icicles melting on the horizon, vanish into the steel-gray waves of noxious heat. And then there's only silence, and the merciless wind, and the scientist listening to his own racing heartbeat. He closes his eyes, and he waits, and waits, and waits for the world to begin to change once again. That's really cool. When did you write that? Only a couple years ago, like very recently. I wanted to do something. I wanted to do a feature-length story about it, or a, you know, a book, or you know, something about them removing Jesus from the timeline. That was the only uh, notion I had, the only idea that was in my mind, and it was definitely a Bradbury-esque inspired idea. And it might have been around the time that I was working on that Bradbury book. Oh, right, yeah. You know? Yeah. Because because Sam Weller was talking about Sound of Thunder one night with Morton, myself, and and I was just like, what would be the strangest, most powerful thing you could remove from a timeline? You know, other than a butterfly. Right. <laughs> well, I was, like, looking at examples of of thing of like movies with the butterfly effect and it brought up the Stephen King the 112263 63 where the guy yes. goes back to try to JFK right yeah which did we watch that whole thing or I think we just started it I don't know if we have finished it yeah I don't know if we finished it either but yeah we should watch that yeah so in uh, I mean in a way Terminator is about do you have you ever seen Terminator or of course yeah Terminator is about... I'm in it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> because you are Linda... What's her name? Hamilton. Linda Hamilton. Yeah. You're way better looking and sexier, by the way. Thank you. Especially after she married James Cameron and he turned her into... Okay. You know. Let's not belittle anybody <laughs> <laughs> publicly. He turned her into like a... a Svelte <laughs> workout machine. <laughs> well, that's me. <laughs>
well, Stephen King, <laughs> I mean, I have the basic, you know, uh, the guy, Jake, went back to uh, try to alter history to prevent the assassination of JFK, thinking he would be improving humanity, but instead returns to a nuclear war and earthquakes, to which Stephen King says, not good to fool with father time. Oh, that's good. Not good. I, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I you like you know, another one, You maybe you've gotten these in your notes, but uh, Back to the Future. Well, of course. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> Funny that wasn't in, like, you know, what I was looking up, but, like, um, It's a Wonderful Life mm-hmm. is like that. Yeah. It's yeah. a Wonderful Life. It's it's more, you know, um, it's like and if he cosmically, angelically ch- shown to him. Right, like if he didn't exist. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I guess you could make an argument that A Christmas Carol is an alternate past story. Right. Alternate history. Right. You know, the ghosts show him what really happened in his past, then they show him what could happen in the future when he dies and everybody hates him and, you know, the washerwomen are stealing his clothes and, you know, yeah. And also, um, one of my fave movies, but Donnie Darko, where he tries to, he he finds that sort of wormhole. I've never seen that. Yes, you have. You've watched it with me, like, did I? Two or three times. No. You're not a big fan of it, but it's one of my favorites. Maybe it was high. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's assumed. <laughs> anyway. Um, but I have some uh, real uh, examples of butterfly effect. <laughs> butterfly effect. It's not um, easy to say three times fast. No, it's not. <laughs> um, do you want to hear them? Yeah. So, the bombing of Nagasaki... Yeah. The U.S. initially intended to bomb the Japanese city of Kuroko with a munitions factory as a target. On the day the U.S. planned to attack, cloudy weather conditions prevented the factory from being seen by military personnel as they flew overhead. The airplane passed over the city three times before the pilots gave up. Locals huddled in shelters heard the hum of the airplane preparing to drop the nuclear bomb and prepared for their destruction. Except Kuroko was never bombed. Military personnel decided on Nagasaki as the target due to improved visibility. The implications of that split-second decision were monumental. We cannot even begin to comprehend how different history might have been if that day had not been cloudy. Kuroko is sometimes referred to as the luckiest city in Japan, and those who live there during the war are still shaken by the near miss. Wow, I never knew that story. That's fascinating. I've never heard that. Yeah, I had never heard of a lot. Well, this one has kind of been joked about, but in the early 1900s, a young Hitler applied for art school and was rejected, possibly by a Jewish professor. By his own estimation and that of scholars, this rejection went on to shape his metamorphosis from an aspiring bohemian artist into the human manifestation of evil. We can only speculate as to how history would have been different, but it's safe to assume that a great deal of tragedy could have been avoided if Hitler had applied himself to watercolors, not genocide. That's awesome. <laughs> what are these called? What is it? What, what, well, what is this it? is under um, hist- historic examples of the butterfly effect. Oh, I see. Yeah. The Chernobyl disaster. In 1986, a test at the Chernobyl nuclear plant went awry and released 400 times the radiation produced by the bombing of Hiroshima. 115,000 people were evacuated from the area and many deaths and birth defects resulting from the radiation. Even today, some areas remain too dangerous to visit. However, it could have been much worse. After the initial explosion, three plant workers volunteered to turn off the underwater valves to prevent a second explosion. 
It has long been believed that the trio died as a result, although there is now some evidence that this may not have been the case. Regardless, diving into a dark basement flooded with radioactive water was a heroic act. Had they failed to turn off the valve, half of Europe would have been destroyed and rendered uninhabitable for a half a million years. Russia, Ukraine, and Kiev also would have become unfit for human habitation. Whether they lived or not, the three men, Alexei Anenko, Valery Bezpalov, and Boris Baranov, stilled the wings of a deadly butterfly. Indeed, the entire Chernobyl disaster was a result of poor design and the ineptitude of staff. The long-term result, in addition to the impact on residents of the area, was widespread anxiety toward nuclear plants and bias against nuclear power, leading to a preference of, for fossil fuels. Some people have speculated that Chernobyl is responsible for the acceleration of global warming as countries become unduly slow to adopt nuclear power. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, we've often talked about uh, how we got together. Because I, I think we've mentioned this before, but I don't think we've actually told the story. So I'll, right. I'll tell the Jill This is the Jill ultimate Jill, yeah. Early in my photography career, in like 2002 or 2003, my friend Sari, who had small children, uh, said I should contact this woman who has a kid's band, and I could like collaborate with her and go and photograph the kids and do photos for parents. And so I did, and I started this you know, kind of working relationship with Jeannie, who was Jay's ex-wife. <laughs> but I was happily married at the time. Everything was, you know, whatever. It was just that. I was just photographing her a couple times, sometimes by herself, sometimes with her band, of which Jay plays harmonica and was sometimes in the band. And so I'd photograph them as a band often. Sometimes uh, the boys, Joey and Billy, were up there also as little kids singing. It was adorable. And I photographed them, I don't know, three or four times. And then... Uh, she became my landlord in my previous marriage, which was totally strange and you know mostly uneventful. But after she was selling the place, you came into the back door as I was in the kitchen with di- making dinner with my husband at the time, and you were going downstairs to get books. I went down to, inter- to introduce myself because I knew who you were. So you came up with books, talked about how you're an author, you signed books for us, you were the nicest human being ever, and even, you know, Greg and I were both like, God, that guy is so nice, <laughs> like, we both recognized it. What? Can I just say I never get tired of hearing this? I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that was pretty much the end of it. That was probably 2007, 2000, and that was it. I didn't Ironically, really... they were, I think they were uh, the Killers games, which... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there were a couple of them though. There, I think like head case, yeah, maybe. maybe. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah. And I wish I knew where those books were. Me too. <laughs> um, but that was it. And I hadn't after that. I didn't really work with her again. Uh, you know, not for any particular reason. And then fast forward to uh, many years later in 2011. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, she contacts me. And I had been dating, and I had been online, and okay, Cupid, and like just a barrage of yahoos. <laughs> and I was done. I had kind of come to a clean slate moment. I went on a, a trip with my best friend, and I was so excited to be unattached and just like, I'm going to have the best time ever. And I get home. Oh, no, no, no. It was right before I left for this trip that Jeannie contacts me and says she has a new band and she wants she needs a photograph like right away and I said well I'm leaving town tomorrow you know I got to do it today so I went and I met her at the Evanston Art Center at the time 
and she just happened to ask me how Greg and I were doing and I said that we were divorced and she said oh welcome to the club you know me too again did not think anything of it did the photo shoot left went on my trip had the best time ever and then uh, came home and then a week or so later uh, I was up at Northwestern on a Saturday driving home to Lincoln Square had to stop at Dominic's to get cat food and saw you walking in I so I saw you from behind and I could tell who you were and you Did were, I have a hat on you had a hat on <laughs> you looked adorable I, I knew immediately who you were and instantly it was like something took over my body which I believed to be my grandmother Helen <laughs> but I went into autopilot and I just followed you in I just had to get cat food but apparently you just had to get one thing too we both got into checkout lanes you know, apart from each other, but at the same time, I forgot your name, so I went over and sort of like hung out around where you were. Right. Keep in mind, I felt like that day I looked like ass, and I didn't want anyone to see me. But all of a sudden, I was like hoping that you would see me. I was like looking at books at the bin, like outside of the. <laughs> and then I still couldn't remember your name. You didn't even notice me. You walked out to your car. I followed you out. You got in your car. You drove away, and I was just like, "What is his name?" And I drove home like. Bonaducci, Bona, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I can't, why can't I remember his name? And then I got home, dropped off the cat food, just threw it down, opened up my computer, and typed in Evanston author and found you on Facebook. Wow. And without any thought, without even taking a moment, I wrote you a message and just said, hey, I don't know if you remember me. And the cute thing is that this is all on Facebook. <laughs> But just, you know, basically I saw Jeannie, heard you got divorced. I'm sorry to hear that, but I would Is love... it still there? Oh, yeah. Our whole oh message board is still there. So, 2011. Yeah. It's 20 a, years or it, uh, 10 years ago. It's adorable. 10 years ago. So, yeah. Wow. So, but anyway, so then that started the whole thing. You got back to me that night and said, let's get together. And so we spent a week kind of like sort of flirting online. And then the next weekend I came back from Cincinnati and we had our first date which was a Sunday night, and then by Tuesday, we were pretty much in love, and it was done. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to make out for a second. So, just... <laughs> so anyway. Wow, that was awesome. So I always kind of go back to, you know, Sari, like saying you should contact this woman. Yeah, there's so many like butterfly effects in there. But then I but today we were talking about it this morning and I thought of like, you know, what if I weren't a photographer? What if I weren't an idiot right. like, you know, senior in in high school talking with my friend Melissa going like, I want to be a photographer for GQ magazine, <laughs> you know, like never having really taken a photo what, what, in my life. Was and, there did you have a butterfly effect for that? Like that, you know, made you want to be a photographer because ironically like I think this this book you know, more than any other book, and it has the, the original story in it, it closed the deal for me. I wanted to do this. I wanted to be a writer. I never dreamed I could do this, what he does in here, and I still can't, but... He's holding it, the book by Ray Bradbury, by yeah. the way. <laughs> like a golf tournament. <laughs> he's stepping up to shoot. Now he's using a four wood. Four iron. <laughs> four iron. <laughs> 
Well, that's the funny thing about it. You know, like, I don't have the romantic, oh, my dad gave me the brownie camera when I was little. Like, I don't, like, I just loved photos. I love looking at magazines. I love fashion. I loved hanging pictures up from magazines in my bedroom, uh, my dorm room, you know, in, in college. But I was, I remember, like, GQ using surfers. I was really into surfing in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> because of my friend Kelly, who came from California. But I just thought, like, they were using all these surfers as models, and I just got super into it, and I just thought, I want to be a photographer for GQ magazine. And then I went to Miami of Ohio and took a photography class and an oceanography class so I could learn about waves. <laughs> Which I withdrew, failed out of, because it was hard as fuck. You're but, like Spicoli. I, You're like, I, what, what class do you learn about waves? <laughs> Catching some... That's pretty much sweet waves. That's pretty much my that was my whole MO going to college. But I did take a photography <laughs> tasty class. Tasty waves. But I did take a photography class and I fell in love with photography. So like when you think about just this like whimsical, like this is what I want to do with my life and right. now, you know, whatever. You know, right. Forty right. years later. <laughs> if I weren't a photographer, I wouldn't have been working with Jeannie and I wouldn't have met you. And if you didn't if you weren't an author, you wouldn't have been coming in the house to get your books and I wouldn't have met you. So anyway. <sighs> and I mean is you know, we we're you know, we're getting near the end of our podcast. But uh, you know, I just wonder if being aware of the butterfly effect, you know, is not a good way to live your life. I think if you're aware, always aware of the butterfly effect, you you will you will take more chances in life. You will do more things. Yeah. I don't know, but I just thought of that. I I might be wrong about that. Well, I mean, the whole point of the me. butterfly effect, though. I mean, I'm telling you this, but <laughs> is that you you don't know you don't know yeah. what that choice is going right. to become and right. what it's going right. to what's going right. to happen because of it. Right. Um, you know, I've always just lived my life in like. What do I want to do right now? How do I want to in the change moment. my life? You know, I want to go to photography. I'm sick of retail. I want to go take a photography class. I want to go, you know, I want to do this. And I just would make, I don't want to live in Florida anymore. I'm going to move to Chicago. Just making decisions based on how I feel at that moment. Having no idea what it's going to mean in the future. You know, you right. can't, you can't know. Good point. But yeah, so, but the ultimate goal is that I, or the ending is that we got together Thank awesome. God. Thank God. <laughs> Should we? I mean, I, I, we kind of did end on a good note with that. Yeah, that's a perfect note. So, all right, let's cut our let's cut to our little closer, closing. Right. Well, usually we close with what we're happy about, but <laughs> right, I'm happy with the butterfly oh effect God. of you. We're getting so good. We just close with naturally with right positive vibes. Right. Well, I, this sounds so stupid because I've said it every time and I really am not great at living up to it, but we'll be better about this. It's like, well, I want to do it once a month. Yeah, more, more uh, consistent, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. You're, you're totally right. right. I think we have, we, we can, we, we have an excuse considering well, <laughs> things that well, have happened over the last two months. Well, also, but, it's sort of, you know, lovely that we just decided to do this. We don't have a boss. We have three people who listen to us. <laughs> right. Our family members who want us to do it again are some of our friends. But other than that, it's not like, you know, we're going to get in trouble. Right. <laughs> so we're sort of on our own schedule. But we're, I'd like to get a little more professional. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. 
we have so many ideas. We're, we do. We call, I mean, that's yeah. the whole point of this podcast is right. we constantly have these right. great conversations that are like, this should be a podcast. This is what we're talking about. Right. This is, let's stop talking about it and let's save it and let's right. talk. Right. So, yeah, we've got a backlog of conversations to have. So, well, then I guess we can just say so long. As my right. grandfather used so to say. So long, and I love you. I love you. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye. <laughs> the music for This Should Be a Podcast is Close Shave by The Riptones. And like everything good, it's available on Spotify. Well, so I'm proud of us. Right.